Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on Saga 960 AM, Peel Region of Ontario, Canada, and on the Big Talker 1067 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from uh, the studio office where there's some sunshine. It's looking a bit nice. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement, who uh, woke up to some snow and ain't looking so happy today on the program. David, how goes it? Yeah, not great. Not great. It uh, it snowed this week, which um, is pretty depressing. But what's funny is my, uh, my laziness in terms of not getting the snow tires off yet appears to have paid off. So that's the silver lining in all of this. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a good thing you have these governmental regulations that help keep you safe and tell you uh, when to put those winter tires on and take them off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ain't that smart. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be a great program. We have a, a guest coming up in uh, the second uh, segment here. Uh, we'll be speaking with Franco of the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, I think it's going to be a pretty, uh, I think it's going to be a fun time. This is uh, Franco Terrazzano. We'll be talking about the budget uh, that was just tabled there in Canada trying to understand the, the costs, trying to understand the gargantuan amounts of money that are now being discussed uh, openly, uh, the different projects and criticisms. You can go back and listen to any of the previous interviews that we've done on these topics and more at ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. There's plenty there and on the YouTube because uh, we're, we're trying to keep that active. Thank you guys for listening and streaming uh, if you're able to do so where you are. And uh, always do check out the podcast version of the program. Uh, so, David, I know there's a couple things that happened this week of note. Uh, what, what's uh, what's the first one that you want to tackle here? Because I think there's a good yeah, amount. Well, I think the first big one is the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer who uh, who now, we can say, murdered um, George Floyd in, in Minnesota. So he was found guilty on all three charges. Um, we don't know what his sentencing will be because that will still be weeks away. But it did very much feel like a bit of a um, maybe our generation's Rodney King or OJ moment where everyone is kind of collectively watching to see the verdict come in just because it was so closely followed. And obviously the horrific video of of when George Floyd um, did pass away. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I don't really have much comment on the ruling itself other than um, it's hard to watch what happened and not feel like that was something that was certainly criminal. Um, and I know that members of, of people who focus on criminal justice reform have really uh, highlighted, I think appropriately, that maybe this is a bit of a turning point in terms of accountability when it comes to law enforcement and how it handles uh, the public. Um, so maybe maybe brighter days are ahead of us. Yeah, indeed. I don't know if there's much more to add. I think the system worked in this circumstance. Uh, while policing might have let people down, definitely the justice system did something. And you are definitely right that this is watched by people around the world. I mean, the, the protests that sparked over the summer um, now over a year ago, that was a big deal. And, you know, there were rallies that were happening all over the world, um, even here in Europe. So it's something that definitely caught on. But, hey, good to see that uh, parts of the justice system still do work. 
and uh, you'll probably get a lot more uh, opinions uh, from others about uh, sort of the outcome and the pressure leading up to before then. So definitely uh, good, good, uh, good on the justice system uh, there in the United States for uh, helping decide this quickly, efficiently, and uh, afford, according yep. to the rule of law. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we could just hope that this becomes more of a trend in terms of accountability, not a trend in terms of continued instances of of um, of police misconduct. Hopefully this starts to change certain behaviors and different techniques that are used by by law enforcement. And then hopefully we can look at this down the road as kind of that inflection point where things started to really make a turn for the better. But um, enough of that. Um, what else is sunny on? ways, David, yeah. sunny ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no fun way to talk about that. It's just not a, it's such a, a even though justice was served, it's still such a, um, a sad event the the passing of George Floyd and so it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to really talk about that in any positive light but um, you've had some things in the works this week let's uh, what did you have um, on the docket yeah one thing I wanted to talk about and I think it's always in the news whenever there's any huge leaking of information or any of these um, you know hacks I, we've seen a lot of that so uh, the op-ed I put out this week uh, is related to the paper that we did, David, on consumer and data privacy. Uh, this is something that I, th I think really does, as we reach the 21st century and we do more and more of our stuff online, particularly in pandemic age, I think it's a big concern. And uh, one thing that we started looking at here at Consumer Choice Center is what would be the best provision for a type of privacy law? Uh, we don't really have a national one in the United States. Um, you know, in Canada, we don't necessarily have an equal. European Union has a version of it in GDPR, but it's actually terrible, not good for innovation. So that's one thing that we wanted to look at and explore. And I think having a, a kind of bill that would look at the recommendations we gave, so the recommendations within are championing innovation, defending portability, allowing interoperability, technology neutrality, patchwork legislation, and finally promoting strong encryption. And it's that last point that I think is is lost in a lot of the kerfuffle of the day because the law enforcement types who often are, you know, president in all kinds of committees uh, between all governments and always giving recommendations as to how the government could make it easier for law enforcement to do their job. Uh, there's a lot of people who say we need to get rid of encryption. And uh, encryption is just that amazing technology that allows your messages to be secure. If you're using things like WhatsApp or Signal, uh, if you're using some kind of encrypted email, it helps keeps that data secure. And that's really important for health information as well. A lot of us use apps or different services to do that. So in our paper, we're just trying to say, hey, look, these are the top recommendations that we need. We should not try to have a privacy law that makes it more difficult for companies and firms that are doing a great job and are actually delivering for their consumers. That's something that is, is definitely not the case in the European Union. And the GDPR is really now synonymous with not allowing people to collect data on their customers at all. And I think it's definitely not been a good trend. 
and it's something that you know we should try to push, at least in the United States and Canada both, figure out a way that we can have an innovation-friendly uh, consumer and data privacy regime, which is lacking at present. Yeah, it's always it's always interesting to see when, I mean, you and I both have uh, friend networks that really spread across the globe. It's always funny to see when we post one of our op-eds that we've written and a friend of ours can't access it because of some silly blocking rule that has to do with the privacy law or something along those lines. And it's just like, there has to be a way where we can continue to promote that interconnectivity while still protecting privacy. And so I think, uh, I think we do a pretty good job of threading the needle there. Yeah. And uh, that, that's something that I've, I've had to deal with too many times uh, writing articles in, in different American publications and all of these areas do not want to contend or really try to justify serving European customers because then it just becomes much more costly. You have to add all these different approaches. You have to put it in a separate database. It's just very crazy, uh, not a good method to go with. So we'll uh, link to that article in the show notes, consumerchoiceradio.com. Uh, David, I know that uh, the budget stuff is, is high on people's minds, at least in Canada, uh, but uh, there's a couple other Canadian topics that are, are definitely top of news, uh, particularly in the uh, the pandemic age. And I know there's a there's some budget stuff, there's some COVID stuff, but uh, you actually had a very good article in the Financial Post that I wanted to highlight all about Ontario's beer store. Uh, for our North Carolina listeners, the beer store is a kind of monopoly. Uh, David, you can explain it more on uh, sale of alcohol there in your province. Uh, doesn't sound like a good idea, David, but you say it's time for more competition. Yes, exactly. So essentially what happened was news broke that the beer store, which is a private entity that is a near monopoly for the sale of beer in Ontario, um, that's existed since Prohibition. It's protected by something called the Master Framework Agreement, which is this really cronyism-based uh, agreement. Um, so news broke that they've been losing money. They lost like $50 million last year. Um, so they're in the red. And my op-ed essentially just argues, well, why do we protect these guys at all? Um, why don't we just open the market up to all of the grocery stores who may want to sell alcohol? Why don't we open it up to convenience stores, which is just commonplace throughout Europe, throughout the United States. Um, there's no real reason to continue to pr protect this kind of bloated monopoly that really doesn't serve the interests of consumers. And so I basically just make the argument um, that it's time to open things up. It would generate a heck of a lot more economic activity. We wouldn't have to sacrifice government revenue in the process. Consumers would get more choice, possibly better prices. And at the same time, there's no evidence to suggest that an increase in point of sale increases alcohol-related crime, which seems to be the number one counter argument for those who want to protect the beer store, which of course is not true. So yeah, it's um, I'm hoping that the Ford government can realize that, you know what, the, the time has come, it should be closing time for, the, for Ontario's beer monopoly. Closing time, time for you to go <laughs> to the places you will be from. Definitely agree. And, you know, coming, uh, having grown up in North Carolina 
and uh, studied in Montreal, I know all too well what some of these um, alcohol monopolies are like, and it's just so strange, you know, that you have these near monopolies or absolute monopolies in various cases that basically are in control of one of the substances that many people label as the most dangerous, yet somehow, you know, there's <laughs> monopoly with all the money tied in with government. I never really understood that, but I think what the pandemic has definitely taught us is that, you know, we don't necessarily need to have a government, a province, a state running these things or granting, you know, universal monopolies and just allowing people to shop like they would any other product, uh, you know, at a store, the supermarket. I mean, the supermarket part is, is really what's so galling. Just, mm -hmm. I just, inst <laughs> when I would visit my grandfather in Ontario and having to go there, it's like, well, we got to go to this particular store with the orange sign. It's like, what? It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Why can't I just go here? Well, it's just because of this, uh, this, this huge agreement. That's just how it is here. But it doesn't always have to be that way, David, and that's the, the picture that you paint for us. Exactly. And what's crazy is that because we have this system, Ontario actually has the worst alcohol retail density in the country. So oh there are goodness. fewer stores per capita than any other province. So hopefully by expanding into other grocery stores and to um, into convenience stores, we can, we can uh, pump those numbers up because those are... Those are rookie numbers in this racket. And we definitely need to get you to, to have more spike seltzers, the hard seltzers. Yep. We, need, we need those to, uh, to definitely increase and to be more available to consumers because it's an amazing product, something that I enjoy, and I know that you have, David. Uh, so we've got a great guest for segment two, David. Could you just give us a quick preview here before we go to break? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to chat with uh, Franco Terrazano of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation going through the budget. Uh, how do we pay for this? Are we going to be able to pay for this? Uh, so we answer all of those questions coming up after the break. So uh, stay with us and uh, stay tuned for our interview with Franco Terrazano. Let's do it. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker FM. Uh, we are joined today by the Canadian Taxpayer Federation's Federal Director, Franco Terrazano, um, to chat about the federal budget, which was just released this week. Uh, there's some 700 pages um, if there's anyone who's probably dug into uh, the facts here, it's definitely Franco and not us. Um, so, so Franco, thank you very much for, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Hey, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. Great, great. So, I mean, I'll really leave the floor to you here. What are some of the big takeaways? What is the good? What is the bad? And what is the ugly? Well, uh, we knew it was going to be bad, right? We knew there was going to be big deficits. We knew there was going to be big debt. But I think this was even worse than what we were, what we were thinking uh, because it, it really reads like a reckless plan to permanently increase federal government spending for years to come. And I think we should make no mistake here. I mean, the vast majority of measures in this budget have nothing to do with, with the pandemic, right? Uh, much of it is, is really just using the cover of COVID-19 so that this government could go on a debt-fueled spending binge. And, and now here's case in point. 
Finance Minister Freeland is going to increase permanent government spending by $100 billion by 2026 with absolutely no idea how we're going to be paying for this. Now, a budget is supposed to be about making tough choices, right? What can we afford? What can we not afford? What should we prioritize? But the only choice this government seems it wants to make is just how many spending promises can it cram into a 700 page plus document. And one thing that I I definitely noticed, and I will point our listeners over to your article in the Financial Post uh, that you co-authored there with your colleague, Aaron Woodrick. Um, One thing that I found was really interesting in this is just how much it appeals to constituencies. You know, there's uh, particular sections about, and I listened to her uh, throne speech on the floor, you know, there's all the talk about this is what we're going to give to the retirees. This is what we're going to give to the kids. This is what we're going to get to particular women. It's as if they're they're playing politics and all of this is kind of about the next election. Do you kind of feel that? Well, we certainly heard it's almost like the thing about every different type of interest group here. The only people that they're, they're really forgetting or the only group is is taxpayers and future generations. Now, you talk about the kids there. Well, you know who's going to be left with a huge price tag? of $1 trillion debt tab, future generations. Um, and I think we should really not kid ourselves here. If, if Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, if, if Finance Minister Freeland don't figure out a way or figure out where their spine is to, to rein in spending, I mean, taxpayers are going to be getting walloped down the road here. And this is the thing that's always got me with every budget. I mean, this criticism is, is as, true for, uh, as true for the Harper government as it is for, for this government is it's it's fine and well to to lay out whatever your plan is for government right you can you can propose any size of government that that you want but at the very least you should at least map out a plan to pay for it so that people know what they're getting this feels a lot like a long list of promises like childcare and some other um, kind of significant initiatives but with no growth strategy and no tax strategy to pay for it, which kind of, I mean, for me, it just feels a little bit deceptive because your ordinary person um, is maybe seeing some of the headlines and going, oh, okay, $10 childcare or $10 a day childcare. That sounds great. Um, But at the same time, not being told what could happen in terms of tax rates to actually pay for the increase. And so um, I, I'm just wondering what your take is on that maybe that little bit of deception that, that seems to be present there in terms of the lack of, of tax plan moving forward. Well, I mean, certainly it seems like we're seeing this for, for a long time. And that was kind of your point, right? We're also seeing this across governments uh, in Canada, provincial levels as well, where uh, you try to spend, 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 hopefully kick the can down the road. So that's something future taxpayers have to worry about. But I mean, at the end of the day, there, there really is no escaping the reality that there will be a time to pay the piper, right? The only way um, that a federal government can spend, it has to be paid back. This money isn't going to be falling from trees. It either it either is paid back uh, through taxes today, taxes to tomorrow, or inflation, which is really a reduction in all of our purchasing power. Now, there's a lot of stuff to dive dive into um, your comments there, but let's maybe start off with with the childcare plan, right? That was something that was uh, he- heavily televised. It's something I think people are going to be talking about. Well, this is a thirty billion dollar 
government childcare program. They're going to be spending it over five years. But here's the thing. We couldn't afford this, not even close, before COVID-19. Remember, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, back in 2015, he promised to balance the budget before COVID, right? Well, did he, did he balance the budget? No. He missed that target by a country mile. We were racking up huge deficits before COVID-19. So we couldn't afford this $30 billion childcare program before COVID-19. Fast forward to, to, to today, right? More than a trillion dollars in debt. So if we couldn't afford this before COVID-19, we certainly can't afford this now. Um, and the reality is when it comes to government, a point that you were touching on, there is no such thing as a free lunch, right? So you might save parents some money now, but who are you sticking with the tab? You're sticking their children with the tab. You're sticking their grandchildren with the tab. And when it comes to affordability, it, we have to remember, it, it really depends on two different things and it's relative. So the first thing is how expensive is a program? The second thing is how much money do you have in your pockets? Well, certainly the federal government could make all of life more affordable, including childcare, if it just let families keep more of our own money in our own pockets. You're listening to Consumer yeah. Choice Radio. We're speaking with Franco Terrazzano of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I know, David, you want yeah. to jump in. I had one quick point, but uh, Dave, you go. So yeah, a lot, a lot of money here, right? Eh? A lot of money, a lot of money. I mean, one thing I saw, and I, I think that Andrew Coyne, Pretty much, he he explained the the nuances of the childcare uh, question quite well. So I mean, it's provincial jurisdiction. It largely involves transfers, so it's more money to the province to figure out what to do. And he basically said, "Well, if you're going to increase funding for childcare, and you're going to spend the money, right? So ignore the question of fiscal responsibility. But we're going to spend the money. Why not just refund the money directly to parents?" Um, if anything, the pandemic has shown that, the, that our federal government is not good at very many things. The only thing that it may be good at is distributing cash um, on demand. And so if you want to administer some type of program, why not just run it that way? Um, that I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I guess the big thing for me is we've chatted here about a lot of the, the spending issues and who's going to pay for this. In your mind, what would have been an ideal uh, budget? What would you have liked to have seen in terms of uh, taxation or spending in, in Minister Freeland's throne speech? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, there was really three things that we that we were looking for that we would have liked to have seen, right? So the first one was a, a firm commitment. What we wanted to see is a firm commitment to keep temporary spending temporary, right? So to not turn this temporary COVID-19 measures into new costly government programs. The, the second thing that we wanted to see was um, to address the, the, the massive spending before COVID-19, right? The, the non-COVID-19 part of the budget. That should have been address no doubt about it we talked about prime minister justin trudeau back in the day promising balanced budgets and obviously missing that target um well there's a ton of places where this government should be able to, to find savings um let's start at the top our members of parliament the people who are supposed to be representing us canadians who are struggling, right? Canadians are taking pay cuts, losing our jobs, losing our businesses. Our members of parliament have pocketed two pay raises since COVID-19. Uh, the next place we would have wanted to find savings is in the bureaucracy. 
for, for most governments across Canada, the cost elephant in the room is government bureaucrats, right? Labor costs. Um, so we, we need bureaucrats to be willing to share in the tough times or, I mean, what are we talking about here? Um, the next thing, equalization. You know, I'm in Calgary, and one of the one of the big issues that we are facing in Alberta is the is this equalization scheme. Well, why is it twenty billion dollars a year? Why does it have to increase every single year? Um, the next big thing we're looking for is corporate welfare to end corporate welfare, and this really dives into our our, our third point with, with what we're looking for it is a bottom up approach to growing the economy. Right, not just spending, spending, spending. Maybe we can dive in there, but that that was a key issue um, that we were hoping for was a taxpayer-friendly recovery, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. When I hear you say bottom-up recovery, it just takes me back to when, when uh, in the his original campaign, Trudeau said he wanted to grow the economy from the heart out, as if it <laughs> was some sort of like fiscal care bear. Um, that's a good one <laughs> on the on the bureaucracy question one thing that I've seen floated and I wonder if there's been any cost analysis to this is for the most part I'm of the opinion that many in the public sector can work remotely what would happen if the federal government just decided to allow for its employees to work from home and forego the costs of rent in Ottawa or rent in any yeah. of the other jurisdictions is are it is there substantial savings there well I haven't seen the the exact dollars and cents but I think that's a, a perfect I think that's a perfect and reasonable conclusion right there's certainly government jobs there's certainly bureaucrats and paper pushers who can and should be able to work from home are you kidding me and then of course we should be able to save money on whether it's rent maybe we can sell some of the assets things of that nature. But let's talk about government employees for a second here, not just federally. Let's talk about the whole situation in Canada, because here is what I have been seeing emerge, at least budding division within Canada and COVID-19. And that's really two classes of, 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 of Canadians, right? You have on the one hand, your private sector workers who have just been taking a beating. And then on the other hand, you have government employees who've been largely gone through this downturn unscathed. Um, now, our friends at a, at a Canadian think tank, secondstreet.org, they've they filed a ton of freedom of information requests. Um, and they asked the federal government, when was the last time your unionized employees have taken a pay cut? Can you imagine what the answer was? It was, it was largely crickets. They had zero records of their unionized employees ever taking a pay cut. I'm okay. Now, a little backstory. I'm in Calgary, Alberta, and I understand that COVID-19 has been has been a struggle for so many of us Canadians for the last year. But Alberta has been going through a downturn for the last five plus years where you have workers in the private sector losing their jobs, taking huge pay cuts, business owners seeing their life savings vanish before their very eyes. And you know what we discovered um, within the provincial bureaucracy? Tons, thousands of government bureaucrats getting pay raises throughout that whole downturn. Thousands of government bureaucrats also getting pay raises in Alberta during lockdowns wow. in 2020. Insanity from, from all levels. And one thing that I noted that impacts a lot of consumers is you have various fees or taxes that have been proposed in order to raise money. Uh, we see uh, mention of the vape tax. Uh, they want to put a cap on credit card transaction fees, a digital services tax, Oh, that'll be fun. And uh, raising yeah. uh, minimum wage federally to about $15 an hour. 
And one thing that I've, I've seen noted elsewhere, and this actually is a perfect parallel to the United States, is that many of these areas that the government is proposing funding are not at all in the federal government's jurisdiction, yet it's able to dangle you know, the money stick and that's kind of the incentive that they can get all this money into things like a daycare program. You know, are there other sort of arguments that people are putting up about jurisdictions and what the actual role of the federal government in Canada is, or is that just now passe in, in uh, 2021 hmm. and after COVID? Well, I don't think it's it's the uh, the most flashy of issues, but I think it's a very important one, and I think it boils down to a very fundamental principle, and is that decisions uh, should be made closer to home right? Decentralization is, is a good thing. Uh, why do you need a one-size-fits-all government program from coast to coast? Let's, let's just stick with childcare just for a quick second, because I know it is the hot-button issue of the day. Um, we have to realize that the circumstances facing parents are going to be vastly different for a family in St. John's, for a family in Hamilton, for a family in Peace River, Alberta. I mean, Canada is so vast <laughs> geographically that we, we, we just have to realize, um, even logically, that there's just going to be so many differences right? So many different situations that family have to, families have to deal with. And that's why there's such an important principle of federalism is that uh, the recognition that a lot of decisions should be made close to home, where people actually understand the different contexts of what families are dealing with. Um, now, you make a good point uh, earlier about the increasing cost of living. So let's just touch on that very briefly. During COVID-19, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a very clear promise that he wasn't going to raise taxes that he wasn't going to raise costs and despite that promise what do we see we what do we see in this budget right a raft of new taxes a raft of tax hikes you said tobacco there's vaping there's a sales tax on digital services there's going to be taxes on on luxury goods um and then the big the biggest tax of all is this huge debt tab that we have to pay right over a trillion dollars that's a price tag uh, for future generations, but it's also going to come eventually down the road in higher taxes if this federal government doesn't figure out a way to control its costs. Now, on top of the additional costs of this budget, let's also look what the federal government has done outside of the budget, right? Well, during COVID-19, we have seen beer booze taxes go up twice. We have seen the carbon tax go up twice. Um, and we, of course, just saw Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announce just before Christmas a Merry Christmas taxpayers massively increasing carbon tax, along with the second carbon tax. You know, we talk about the issue of affordability. It doesn't just depend on what that specific thing costs. It also depends on how much money we have in our pockets. And it seems like the federal government and other levels of government continue to just eat away, eat away, eat away at our paychecks. Uh, you've been listening to Consumer Choice Radio uh, with our guest, Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Well, life has nearly killed me and my mind is putting me on, yeah. And we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 106.7 FM, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. So, David, that was a great interview uh, with Franco. I did not know that the huge budget toll would be so gargantuan, uh, but it, it definitely does bring some perspective here. And I think, as, as he mentioned, you know, this is not just an invention of the pandemic-era spending habits of this party. Uh, this is something that actually began even before 
the COVID-19 Carol Baskins virus was even a thing. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't in a great financial position prior to the pandemic. And this really highlights the ongoing problem. It's not just an issue with the Trudeau government. It certainly applies to other governments is that when you're supposed to tighten the purse strings when times are good so that you can afford when times are bad. Um, but unfortunately, this government spent like a drunken sailor when times were good. And now I don't even, I can't even think of a, an analogy to describe um, the most recent spending announcements. And obviously some of it is required because of the pandemic. Um, I'm not to, not to say that I'm opposed to all of it, but it's one of those things where if you, if you do not save during bad times, um, you are going to be screwed. Uh, sorry, save in good times, you're going to be screwed in bad times. And that's really where we are now. And it's going to be taxpayers. It's going to be people of, of my generation and younger who are going to have to foot this bill. Yeah, this is uh, the toll from this is something that's going to hit every single society. And one thing that really irked me uh, in listening to some of the conversation, not of the interview, but of the budget, is that there, there was this claim that, you know, all of these people have been harmed by the pandemic, which in some sense might be true if people have uh, fallen ill or unfortunately had family members pass away. Uh, but most of the economic damage has come from lockdowns imposed by governments, which in many cases, and I think it's pretty clear looking at different jurisdictions around the world, did not necessarily need to be so harsh. I know you're in the midst of one, David. I know in Ontario, particularly in the Peel region, things are, are not looking very good at all. But, you know, to say that it's just because of the virus, you know, we're missing the aspect of the government forcing everyone to close their business down. I think that's that's something that's yeah. just kind of lost in all of this. Yeah, and a perfect example of that, I'm going to go on a bit of a rant here, is closing golf courses. Golf courses would not have been impacted by any type of third wave because it's an activity that you can do completely safely. Not one case in Canada that I've seen is linked to transmission from a golf course because you're outside. And yet Ontario has closed golf courses and so arbitrarily, uh, all of these mostly small businesses, especially your local courses, are going to basically take a hit for four weeks, not because the pandemic has stopped people from wanting to golf, because the government says that they can't. And the government says that they can't without really showing any evidence that that's going to be effective in preventing the spread of, of the virus. And so you're right. There, there was a lot of economic damage that is um, just because of government mandate. I mean, some of it makes sense. Uh, Appeal region right now is, is going to force businesses with more than five cases to close, um, which I actually think is probably a more reasonable approach because then you're, you're stopping the spread in a, in a warehouse or in a, a place of business. Um, but just kind of whole, wholeheartedly shutting down an entire industry that has no relevance to the spread of the virus um, kind of perfectly encapsulates your point about where the harm comes, comes from. And then none of this has ever been targeted, right? It's always been these large blanket bans or lockdowns telling people we all need to shut down every single thing. 
And it's like, well, most of the studies, you know, tell us it's not people in restaurants that are spreading this like wildfire fire. It's private gatherings. It's things like elderly homes. You know, there's there's so much in this that we say is based on science when really it's not. I know there's a, a lot of the stuff that's been discussed in Ontario and actually got some international headlines. You know, I, I know you saw the tweets, David, you know, Ontario is now a police state. Uh, there's a there's a lot of talk mm-hmm. about how police officers were going to be empowered to not just hand out fines and citations and such, but actually like go and troll the streets looking for people breaking some of these rules and curfews. I mean, yeah. it really did sound heavy. Yeah, the only silver lining was that a lot of the local or regional police forces immediately said that they weren't going to do that. So that was nice. Um, the OPP, so the provincial um, police department, kind of like a like a state trooper, I guess, um, they still do have the authority or, or will use their authority to do that. Um, but yeah, it just seems so arbitrary to empower law enforcement to be able to ask you if what you're doing is essential and we would never tolerate this right in any other aspect of life right under under normal circumstances you couldn't be approached and questioned without first being suspected of committing some sort of violation like an officer can't just pull you over and kind of rummage around your car to see if there's bad stuff in there. They have to have a reason for it. They have to have a warrant or just cause. Um, and so it's just strange that the, the province would want to empower law enforcement to go ahead and do that. Why would you give more pretext for police officers to reach out to citizens if you're worried about over-policing, criminalization of you know everyday oh, yeah. activities? It, it it falls in line with that narrative. And all of this is obviously buoyed by the various facts that various people have. And there are a lot of people in government that sing one tune on everything related to these restrictions or what we need to do. Uh, you have entire groups of, of people or populations that understand one message. And uh, David, I want to play this clip from uh, one of our favorite programs. Uh, still awaiting our invitations uh, real time with Bill Maher. Uh, So he had a very good segment just about that, about what people believe about the pandemic and the facts and uh, sort of how it's it's led us all a bit crazy. When all of our sources for medical information have an agenda to spin us, yeah, you wind up with a badly misinformed population, including on the left. Liberals often mock the Republican misinformation bubble, which, of course, is very real. Ask anyone who works at Hillary's Pizza Parlor. (laughs) And we do know conservatives have some loopy ideas about COVID, like the third of Republicans who believe it couldn't be spread by someone showing no symptoms. But what about liberals? You know, the high information by the science people? In a recent Gallup survey, Democrats did much worse than Republicans in getting the right answer to the fundamental question, what are the chances that someone who gets COVID will need to be hospitalized? The answer is between 1% and 5%. 41% of Democrats thought it was over 50%. Another 28% put the chances at 20 to 49 So almost 70% of Democrats are wildly off 
on this key question and also have a greatly exaggerated view of the danger of COVID-2 and the mortality rate among children. All of which explains why today the states with the highest share of schools that are still closed are all blue states. So if the right-wing media bubble has to own things like climate change denial, shouldn't liberal media have to answer for, how did your audience wind up believing such a bunch of crap about COVID? I'm surprised I didn't have to anything out there, but yeah, I think a great, great clip from, from Bill Maher. I mean, it's part of a larger rant. Uh, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I love it because it's, it's, it's true. You, you have people on the far right who don't think the virus is real and believe all sorts of nonsense about vaccines, but then you have people on the left or however you want to describe them who believe who also believe just things that are incredibly insane. And I mean, one Twitter exchange from this week perfectly encapsulates this. So Reasons Robbie Suave um, has been kind of beating the drum um, with evidence that you don't need to wear a mask outside. There's really no, there's no advantage to wearing a mask outside. And Keith Olbermann, uh, who's been in American media for a long time called him a fascist <laughs> because he because he was making the argument that you don't need to wear a mask outside not that you shouldn't wear one inside not that you shouldn't wear one if you feel like it obviously if you feel like wearing one wear whatever you want he was just basically saying that any mandates that say you should have to wear one outside really aren't doing any good and 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 the left twitter sphere just went apocalyptic as if robbie suave was alex jones and here's keith olberman calling him a fascist and it's like have we completely lost our plot here no definitely (laughs) and I know all of this is just made all the worse by the kind of, you know, performative nature of much of this. And I think there was um, there was a comment. I think it was a might have been an article in Newsweek by one of the the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration uh, that some of you might know about. It's one of the doctors from Stanford, and he basically said, you know, if you want to point to someone who who is the most anti-vaxer, you know, that we know about, it's actually Anthony Fauci because what he's doing is he's He's fully vaccinated. Everyone he works with is fully vaccinated. And he's basically waffling, telling people that even if you're vaccinated, there's no going back to normal. You still need to wear the mask. You still need to do all of this. And just having this like strange, I don't know, reaction to where it's very similar to what Bill Maher was talking about. You know, they don't want to panic the public. So you just lie to them, sort of this noble lie. And why would I get the vaccine if nothing changes at all? You know, where's the glory dance? Where is the celebratory nature that I'm seeing elsewhere? Why can't we have that, you know, on a grander scale? Because those who are, you know, vaccine skeptic, and, you know, there are some on the right, but there are a lot of minority communities on the left. If they don't see a path out of this, what's the reason? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, I want, I want a, I want the roaring 20s. That's what I want. I want vaccinations and then I want the economy and our social lives and all of the fun that we used to do to come back with a vengeance. But on the trust issue, I mean, it just goes back, just go back to the mask question, right? The noble lie that that public health officials were telling 
both Canadians and Americans, not to buy masks. Don't don't buy masks unless you have symptoms. Don't buy masks. They spent, I don't know, three, four weeks doing exactly that and then had to do a complete 180 um, and, and encourage masks and then businesses required them and then they ended up becoming law in some places. And when you do that, when you tell that noble lie, everyone sees it for what it is. And then people start to take your advice with a grain of salt, um, or they just flat out question what you have to say because you were wrong before, um, or you were deceptive before. And so it's it, just I, like with the recommendations on how much alcohol you should drink or, you know, or what you're supposed to eat and drink. Like people will just tune out and not listen anymore if they know that they're being fed some kind of lie or, or something that's been you know, washed in, in sort of the strange, you know, consultancy world of communications, that's not what we should be getting, especially now, not a year in, man, not a year in, you know, all, I think everyone is becoming a media critic these days because they understand that, you know, we're so reliant on media for information and, you know, the kinds of stuff that are, are thrown about, it makes everyone a little bit skeptical, which I, I celebrate, you know, that increased skepticism just not when it leads to more lockdowns and more terrible <laughs> atrocities. Uh, well, yeah, and, and not when it leads to a badly, like, the, so the, the skepticism is, is perfectly fine when the public health agencies are not committing unforced errors, right? You do the best you can, and, and, and yes, things are going to change, but there's a difference between when the science on a particular subject changes. And when you just flat out deceived the public um, for an extended period of time, I mean, the consequences of that, I mean, I think in retrospect, that will be one of the biggest blunders, um, at least in the top 10 throughout the pandemic, when we kind of are able to sit back and reflect and look at how policy changed things. I think the the noble lie about masks will probably be one of the bigger uh, whoopsies uh, when we are able to review things. Well, thankfully, uh, there'll be none of that here. So thank you guys for tuning in on Consumer Toys Radio. David, talk to you next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy and science tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters you can find all of our previous episodes interviews and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com as well as the podcast version of this show and as always be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts you can follow us on twitter at consumer c radio myself at y-a-e-l-o-s-s and david at clement liberty and find our interviews on youtube and instagram just looking up consumer choice radio if there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover email us directly at hello 
at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. Hallelujah. Glory.